Father, we give thanks to you today that uh, we have a firm foundation in Jesus Christ. And that there is no other foundation than the one that is laid that is Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we confess that throughout this week there have been times where we have looked to other foundations. And Lord, as we do this, we must freely admit that we set ourselves on unstable ground. We are like the man who built his house on the sand. And Lord, we can look back at this week in, in sometimes small ways and in sometimes big ways, Lord. We have seen the storms rock our lives because we were not built upon the firm foundation. So, Lord, we give thanks to you for the gift of this Lord's Day. It gives us an opportunity to remind ourselves of the sure, firm foundation that we have in Christ. Father, guide and direct in our lives today through your word. May your spirit work, mold and shape us, form us more into the image of your Son. We pray all this in Christ's precious name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, and this is the fifth sermon on the reminders that, Paul, or that Peter gives us in 2 Peter, and Lord willing, we will finish these reminders, and then my plan is to finish 2 Peter next week. And I sort of laugh at that myself because I don't think it's going to happen. But that's the plan. That's the plan. You know, there is a, I don't want to say a conflict, but there seems to be in our own minds a conflict that we set up between God's grace and His commands. And at times we can sometimes wonder, are God's commands in conflict with His grace? And of course, we know that that's not the case. But yet, in our own minds, in our own thinking, we can sort of head down that road and that way of thinking. Peter does, has no such concept of those things being in conflict. As we have seen, as, as this book begins calling us to find strength for the pilgrim life through the knowledge of God, the, particularly the knowledge of Christ, and it is through Christ, through His own glory and excellence, that we've received great promises, things that we don't deserve. God's grace has showered us with so much, has it not? And so in light of that, we yet see that God provides commands. He calls us to things. And he, particularly in what Peter has been reminding us here in 2 Peter chapter 3, he's been reminding us of the consequences of sin. That if we persist in sinful actions, that there will come upon this earth a day of judgment. God is exceedingly patient. He is merciful. He is gracious. But the day of the Lord will come. Come, Peter tells us. 
And so in light of that, as we're going to see in just a few moments, Peter charges us to remember the commands of God. Again, just to, complete, just to do a quick reminder of what we've worked through so far in chapter 3, at the beginning he calls upon us to remember the Word of God, that we are to pursue it, rejecting the Word of scoffers and marveling at what God's Word has the power to do. And God's Word provides for us promises. And those promises are not bound by time. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. But this God who provides these promises ensures those promises because He is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come or reach repentance. But then as we saw Last week, we should not count God's patience as an excuse or to think in any way, shape, or form it indicates that He will not exact justice on the earth. And so as we looked at verses 10, I'm sorry, verse 10 last week, we saw that the day of the Lord will come. And it will come consuming with fire that will burn the heavens themselves with a great sound, with a roar. And the elements themselves will be dissolved and everything on this earth will be exposed. Everything done upon this earth will be exposed. So Peter, in driving us to that point, now comes to conclude these reminders by calling us to remember the commands of God. Look with me in verses 11 through 13 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of god because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn but According to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter asks this question, what sort of people ought we to be? We need to remember what it means to be a pilgrim, what it means to follow the commands of God. Now he begins by calling us to be motivated by God's judgment of sin. Look again with me in verse 11. He says, he, he sets up a conditional phrase here. He, he is providing for us a reason for why we should consider the lives of holiness and godliness that we're called to. All these things are going to be what? Dissolved. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, that should cause us to ask ourselves, what type of person should we be? He ends by reminding us of the responsibility we have to keep the commands of God. If you remember last week, we ended with the last chapter of Malachi. And we looked at some of the commands that were given there. And as, as Malachi reminds Israel, this is before 400 years of silence are going to come, before Christ comes to, in His first advent, 
Malachi reminds God's people that God is going to judge, but yet for those who fear him, there's great hope. And then at the end of that, he tacks this on. Remember the commandments that the Lord gave to Moses. So as he works through these wonderful promises and wonderful hopes that God gives and the warnings that he gives to those who reject him, he then reminds God's people, listen, follow what God has said. And Peter is doing the same thing here. If we consider, as what he says in verse 10, that the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed, shouldn't that make us live lives that are circumspect, that are looking around us and seeking to live a life in accordance with God's glory? He reminds us that we must keep God's commandments. Now, the motivation here is very clear. This world will be dissolved. As I mentioned last week, as sort of a preview of the sermon for this week, this releases us from the things of this world. And yet, if we were honest and looked at our own lives, how easily are we held captive by the things of this world? There's a saying that you don't that if you live your life for the things you own, you do not end up owning those things. Those things end up owning you. You've heard that statement before. And how true it is that if we tie our lives, if we tie our hope in this life to the things of this world, we're tying them to things that will not last. You know, we live in a day and age of untold material prosperity, particularly here in America. And really in the world in general, there is, we're living in a time where people are richer than they really have been in any other time in human history. Now, yes, there are people who are still suffering. Yes, there is still untold poverty throughout this world. But particularly if you live in America, you're one of the richest of the rich in this world. And I would just seek to have us learn from history. Go back to the 1920s. What happened? People had their hope in a booming economy. And what happened? It all came crashing down. And that was just a taste of the fact that the things of this world will dissolve. People's bank accounts dissolved. Imagine what it's going to be like when the elements of this world dissolve. So when Peter asks what sort of people ought you to be, it should cause us to recognize I need to get myself disentangled from this world. My bank account is not what defines me. My comfort is not what defines me. My possessions are not what define me. All that stuff will not endure. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, makes it very clear. Where are we to lay up our treasures? In heaven. Because there, the things that we seek in heaven above cannot be touched by the corruption of this world. But here on earth, moth and rust corrupts and thieves break through and steal. And so we need to disentangle ourselves from the materialism from the focus on this world. 
Secondly, it also reminds us of the terrible effects of breaking God's commandments. Sin is not a small thing in the eyes of our holy and righteous God. It evokes His wrath. And that will be demonstrated on that day when this earth is stripped bare and destroyed by the flames of His anger. We live in a day and age that not only are we tied to this world, sin is something to be celebrated. Sin is something to indulge in and revel in. And when Peter says that on that day, the day of the Lord, the works that are done on the earth will be exposed, it is going to expose not just the things that have been done, but it's going to expose the hearts and the attitudes and the actions of every single person in this room today. Of every single person who has ever walked the earth, you cannot hide your sin. You may be able to hide it from men, but you cannot hide it from God. You know, today we talk about scandals. And scandals happen when someone gets caught doing something they're not supposed to. I remember several years ago, they, a lot of politicians were having problems because they would have hot mics and they would be making offhand comments with their hot mic on and it would sort of show where they truly were and it was scandals. We know that there have been all sorts of scandals where people have been caught doing what they ought not to do. Their works have been exposed and we who live behind oftentimes the same shroud of secrecy in our self-righteousness look forward and say, ah, look at what's so, what's so terrible about this person. Listen, the scandal on that day will be your own life if you refuse to turn to Christ. You know what sits in the deepest, darkest crevices of your own heart. You know what actions you've taken when the lights are off and nobody's home and you're at the computer all by yourself. You know your sin. And there is going to come a day where you can no longer hide it. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Peter says, what sort of person ought you to be? And so considering these things, what will God gaze upon when we have nowhere to hide? What will He see? Now lest you think that the answer is well, I'm going to do more good than bad. That's not the gospel. Lest you think that the escape that we are to seek from this day of exposure is to not only have our bad works exposed, but also our good works exposed. What does God think of our good works? All our righteousness is what? Filthy rags. The best that you have to offer God is nothing. And that's why the gospel is such good 
news. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The gospel is, is, is a hope for those who have obtained a faith that provides the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. On that day, the hope of all who seek to live before God eternally is not placed in the fact that they stopped doing their bad things, although that is a consequence of that, or that they've done good things. The hope is that they are in Jesus and that what is exposed on that day is that Christ's righteousness is ours. That's the hope that we have. And if your hope is placed in anything else, if your hope is placed in your goodness, if your hope on that day is placed that hopefully there'll be these cosmic scales and your good will outweigh your bad, and as long as your good outweighs your bad, then that will expose the, the hope that you have and that you'll come into God's kingdom. Listen, Jesus tells us, if you're going to enter the kingdom, you have to be perfect. And there's only one person who's reached that level of perfection. It is Jesus Christ and God made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So the first answer to this question, what sort of people ought we to be when we consider what's going to happen on that day? We must be people of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. But then that faith affects us. It transforms us. It changes us. And that's where we see, secondly, we are to be holy in accordance with God's character. Notice what Peter says in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Holiness and godliness. For the believer, for the one who has turned to Christ in faith, when we consider the judgment of God upon this earth, it should cause us to seek to be like Him. The word that he uses here for lives means specifically our conduct, the manner of our life, the way in which we conduct ourselves as pilgrims in this world. Our conduct is actually a reflection of where our life is derived from. We all live for something, don't we? We all live for something. Some people live for sports. Steelers football is life. You ever seen somebody put that on a bumper sticker or say something like that? The pirates are life. I guess people aren't having very good lives if the pirates are lives. Penguins. Maybe engaging and, and working and, and playing in sports is the thing that you live for. Some people live for entertainment. They have to see the latest movies. They have to have the TV programs on, the best video games. Their life lives, live for entertainment. Maybe it's for leisure. You're working for the weekend, right? We hear that term, right? You look forward to your vacations and outings and trips and getaways, and that's what shapes your conduct. You do everything in your life looking for that next break. 
There's so many things that could be placed here for what we live for. And what shows that what we live for is our conduct. Our conduct reflects where our lives are focused. These can even be good things. Family, friends, careers. But Peter is reminding us that the pilgrim, the one who doesn't belong to this world, his conduct of life reflects a life that is set to glorify God in all things because God is his life. Christ is his life. We seek to be like him because he is our life. Now, what does that look like? And Peter uses two words here to communicate that idea. He uses, first of all, the term holiness. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness? Now, holiness, we know well, refers to separateness or or set-apartness, to be set apart to something. When we speak of God's holiness, we refer to the fact that He is entirely separate from this world. He is the immortal, invisible, God-only wise. He is unlike this universe. He does not come from the matter of this universe. He's not made up of matter. He's spirit. And as such, He is completely distinct from everything else that exists. He's wholly other. And so His holiness refers to the fact that He's separate from creation, separate from sin, separate entirely. Now, what does it mean for us to be holy? And the separateness idea comes in as well. We are to be separated unto God. So that truly a pilgrim, someone who doesn't belong in this world, where do we belong? With God. That's why Paul says when we're absent from this body, we are what? Present where? With the Lord. We're back where we, we're where we belong. And so pilgrims are those who are separated from this world to God. Now considering that everything else in this world is to be destroyed, shouldn't that put a little oomph on our separateness? Shouldn't it help us to, again, disentangle ourselves from this world? Holiness demands separation from this world. Listen, your accomplishments in this world mean nothing in light of eternity. Now, I know that's, that's a hard truth to come to. Because we live in a world that wants to praise everything that we've done, and we give people medals for every seemingly insignificant act in this world. And listen, we should place honor to whom honor is due. I'm not saying that those things are wrong in and of themselves, but that's not where you should find your significance. If you're finding your significance because you got a raise at work, you got recognition, you got a certificate, you got a trophy, your significance is still tied to things that will burn. Your significance is found and should be found in the fact that you are a child of the eternal God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's 
what gives you significance. And that significance endures beyond this world. It is the only way that we can find hope beyond the tomb that if the Lord tarries, we will all lay in. If our significance is found in Christ. So we need to separate ourselves from this world. Listen, your position at work, the number of zeros in your bank account, the size of your house or the car that you drive, none of these things provide you true significance. And so while we rejoice in these things that God graciously gives us, they're not the source of our life. Christ is. And that should form and shape our conduct. You know, people, particularly as they're nearing the end of their lives, they often want to think that they've left an impact, that they've had, a, a, um, a, they've been able to leave, make a change or, or leave a lasting legacy for people. And today we look on and make heroes of the past heroes. I think about Gutenberg and the printing press. You know, if you're holding a, a bound copy of Scripture in your hands, that goes all the way back to Gutenberg. We think of the White Wright brothers and the airplane. You know, now we're able to, the whole world is, is accessible now because we can fly over the oceans. And that goes back to what the Wright brothers did. We think of Louis Pascal and penicillin and how health has been so changed by the discovery of antibiotics. We think of Steve Jobs and the Apple computer. And if you're holding an iPhone in your hand reading the Scriptures, that can be traced back to Steve Jobs. And of course, who could not forget Christopher Latham Scholes, the inventor of the typewriter, right? If, if you're new here, I sort of have a, a thing for typewriters. I collect typewriters. But I do recognize that they also all will burn, which my wife would wish would happen more sooner than later. Listen, all of these men set themselves apart and distinguished themselves and left a lasting impact on the world around them. And today we continue to know their names. You probably knew all of them except for Christopher Latham Scholes. And now you have a useless piece of information that you can take with you. They set themselves apart for those things. You know, if you read the stories of these men and, and what they did, that was their life. They pursued it wholeheartedly. And God certainly used them to bring about the world in which we live today. But listen, should we not set our lives apart for something even greater? You realize that in the kingdom of God, Greatness is not determined by whether or not you invented the printing press, invented the iPhone, whether or not you came up with penicillin, or even whether or not you invented the typewriter. In the kingdom of God, what is determined of your greatness is that your Christ is great. And so should you not set yourself apart to Him? That's what it means to pursue holiness. And with that holiness then comes godliness. Again, since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and 
godliness. Those who are set apart to God are those who reflect God's own character. Pilgrims seek to be like the one whom they are set apart from. So holiness, proper holiness, results in godliness. In fact, I think if we could sum up the path of a pilgrim in one word, it would be godliness. And if we could sum up the path of this world, we could sum it up in one other word, ungodliness. In high school, we used to go to a camp in North Carolina called the Wilds, and there was a, a man there, his name was Rand Hummel, and he used to have this saying, and it stuck with me. It says, there are just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. And so if we're to set ourselves apart to God, then our lives should reflect His character and nature through godliness. And that's where His commands come in. You realize that the law is given. It's never given to have us attain or be like God on our own merits. Rather, the law is given to reflect to us who God is. And when we see that reflection, it's used by God as a tool to show us that we do not measure up. And then it shows us Christ who does measure up. And so we cast our hope upon Him. And now the law is not useless to us. Now, by God's grace, we seek to keep the law. We seek to follow God's commands. We seek to be like Jesus. And what is Jesus like? He perfectly keeps the law of God. He follows His commands. He was tempted in every point, like as we are, yet without sin. So Paul tells Timothy, what does it, look to be, what does it mean to be godly? Well, we don't have anything to do with irreverent, silly myths. But rather we spend our lives, and I like how he says this, training ourselves for godliness. My birthday was yesterday. Uh, I'm 41 now, and I'm beginning to feel it all the more. I, I got for my birthday a, a bike. I've been wanting to, uh, to have a bike to get on the trails and you know, do some biking. And um, I had a bike before, and it was stolen off my front porch. So I was intimately reminded that thieves break through and steal. So this one's got a lock on it and everything. And so I got it all together, put it together, and pumped up the, pumped up the uh, tires. I'm like, all right, I'm going to take this first spin. And I remember when I was like 17 and 18, I had this mountain bike, and I was going everywhere. I was jumping off of rocks and doing, you know, bunny hops and all this stuff. Man, it's a lot different when you're 41. There was like this, just this little grade I had to go up. I'm like, what is wrong with my legs? They hurt. And so I have to train myself by getting on that bike and hurting a little bit more to be able to enjoy it over time. That's what Paul says to Timothy. We need to train ourselves for godliness. Then he gives the point, bodily training is of some value. But godliness is of value in how many ways? Every way. As it holds promise, not just for the present life, 
but also for the life to come. Listen, this present world is going to burn. And godliness provides hope for us now, but you know what? It provides a greater hope for the world that's to come. And so Paul goes on, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we, what does he say godliness requires? Toil and striving. Why? We've set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So when, Tim, when Paul tells Timothy to do these things, he's calling on him to train himself, to work hard at godliness. And so is Peter. Listen, this world's going to burn, so shouldn't you be someone who is set apart unto God and ardently pursuing godliness in your life, striving and toiling for it? And you know what? Our God is such a gracious God, is He not? He's a gracious God because sometimes He kicks out our earthly-mindedness out from underneath us because we, we use it like a crutch. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful. You know, you think about a kid. I remember as a kid, I'd be doing stuff my dad told me not to do. He caught me doing it, and uh, he would apply the rod of correction to the seat of judgment, and I was not an encouraging thing. Discipline is painful. Now, you know, I'm not saying you have to beat your kid, but you can also... You know, have things taken away from them. We don't, we don't like discipline. Kids don't like discipline, right, parents? Kids don't like to be disciplined. But yet, when God disciplines us, how often do we act like little kids, right? Oh, we don't like this. When God kicks out the crutches in our life, He's doing it so that it would later yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so the writer of Hebrews goes on, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. God kicks out the crutches so that we will stand not on dependence on the things of this world, but so that our body will be straightly standing upon Christ alone. That, that then brings us to strive for peace for everyone. And then we're striving for what? Holiness. And here's the thing. This holiness and godliness that we are seeking to be like, no one sees God unless they're holy. No one sees God unless they're set apart to Him. So as Peter reminds us to remember the commands of God, we're motivated by God's judgments of sin. We're to be holy in accordance with God's character. And then we are to be patient and wait for God's timing. How many of you like to be patient? <laughs> Nobody likes to be patient. Nobody likes to be patient. Notice what he says here. Verse 12. 
And, and Peter's going to say something that's almost sort of contradictory. He says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. See, our attitude as we live a life separated to God, living in holiness, is that we're ultimately looking and waiting for Christ to come back. Now, waiting is a common theme in Scripture, is it not? Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He said it twice there. Does he say it elsewhere? Sure. Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in, the word, in His word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord. More than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. Proverbs 20, 22. Boy, this one we really need to get a hold of. Do not, repay, I, do not say I will repay evil, but what are we to do? Wait for the Lord, and He will deliver you. And we all know this passage well. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. Listen, the path of a pilgrim is a pathway that we're walking. How do we find strength to walk it? We wait for the Lord. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach then let them speak. Let us, draw, let us together draw near for judgment. And even one of the, one of the missed often stories of, that, we, that we look at at Christmas time is the story of Simeon. Here's a man in Jerusalem. And what was he doing there? He was waiting. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is a pilgrim. Simeon is an example of what it means to be a pilgrim. He had waited decades. And that waiting was rewarded by the Lord because guess who came to the temple that day to be dedicated? God in the flesh. And so we are called to not be sluggish, but we're to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what? The promises. And so James tells us this, be patient therefore, brothers, until what? The coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. He gives us some examples we need to be like the farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, this is a command. What are we to do? Be patient. Establish your hearts. And then remember, the coming of the Lord is what? At hand. So we need to be patient. But secondly, notice what Peter says. Be patient, waiting for, and hastening 
the coming day of the Lord. Now, wait a second. What does that mean? What does it mean to hasten? Well, the term that's used here means hurry up. And so Peter says, wait, but hurry up. What, what, what in the world is going on here? Now, some have looked at this verse and argued that we have a responsibility through our holy and godly living to hurry along the return of Christ so that in response to our godliness and our holiness, God will come and bring about the kingdom. And I'll be honest, that is one possible legitimate reading of this, but I don't think that that's the intention that Peter has here. I think the point of what Peter is pointing us to is to recognize that we need to hasten the coming day of the Lord by hurrying up to live lives of holiness and godliness as we wait. Aren't we very slow to obey the Lord? Sometimes, don't we, don't, don't we in our stubbornness require a lot of prodding to come along and to listen to what the Lord is calling us to do? Peter's saying, as you wait, Hasten towards this holiness and godliness. Don't wait to turn your life to the Lord and live for Him. We cannot just put it off. We cannot wait to disentangle ourselves from the things of this world. Maybe you're looking forward and you said, once I retire, that's when I'm going to have the time to really commit my life to the Lord. Maybe you say, once this happens or once that happens, once my situation in life changes, that's when I can commit my life to the Lord. And Peter is saying, you're waiting for God to come, so hurry up about living a life of godliness and holiness. Hasten in light of this kingdom. But secondly, I also think that we can see that our hastening of the day of God is a hastening by crying out to God to come. What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom, what? Come. In Revelation, we we saw this last week, the martyrs underneath the throne of heaven are crying out to God. And what is their cry? How long, O Lord? If you're truly not living for this world, your greatest desire should be for Jesus to come back. That should be your end-all, be-all. That should be the thing you look forward to with the most anticipation, with all that you are. And so we need to wait and hasten unto the coming of the Lord. Which then brings us finally in verse 13 to see that we are, as we're waiting, expectant of the consummation of our salvation. Again, at the end of verse 12, Peter reminds us again, we're waiting and hastening under the day of the Lord because this world, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But then we go back to that promise in verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
The wonder of setting our hope beyond this world and on to Christ is that while this world will not endure, the destruction of this world is not the end for God's people. We wait for a new heavens and a new earth. God is not a God who utterly destroys. He provides hope and renewal for those who turn to Christ. And so Peter points us to this new heaven and this new earth. And what is the description of this new heaven and this new earth? It is a peaceful place. It's a place where tears are wiped away. It's described as the new Eden. The tree of life is planted in the midst of it and its leaves provide continual healing. It's a place of pure joy and delight because the Lord our God is in our midst. And Peter really describes it well. This new heavens and this new earth that we will live in, it is defined as a place of righteousness. Notice what he says. The new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells it is the living place it is where righteousness calls home but how different is that than the world we live in today this is a world that says to righteousness get out and for those who have been made righteous by the righteous one we yearn for righteousness. We yearn for justice. We yearn for that day to come. This righteousness dwells there because the righteous God Himself dwells there. And while we enjoy this today as we have the Holy Spirit given to us, as we walk the path of a pilgrim, that spiritual reality will become a physical one because all sin will be banished. As Isaiah says of this place, there shall the sun will be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be, what? Righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. As John reminds us in Revelation, nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are, and notice this is not, the, the, those who are who are clean, those who will never again sin, they aren't that way because of what they have done. They are that way because they have been written in the Lamb's book of life. It is only by the grace of God that we enter the new earth where righteousness dwells. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made a promise. 
in the Beatitudes. He speaks of those who are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. And what's the promise? They will be filled. This is the completion and the fulfillment of that promise. And so, again, Peter reminds us of promises. He's closing down this book. He's bringing his letter to an end, and he ends much as he begins. In 2 Peter 1, 3-4, this has been our theme for this entire study. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and what? Godliness. And this comes to the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great what? Promises. And this promise Peter looks at and says, according to that promise, we have a new heavens and a new earth waiting for us. So Paul tells the church at Colossae, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are what? Above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. This is the great hope. And so, today, are you still entangled by this world? Or are you casting it off, seeing it for what it is, as that which will be destroyed? Peter calls us to be motivated by God's judgment of sin, to be holy in accordance with God's character, to be patient and wait for God's timing, and then to be expectant of the consummation of our salvation. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the truth we find it in. And we ask, Lord, that You would Work in our hearts by your Spirit. May we truly be pilgrims, those living in a world where we do not belong. And may we, as Paul challenges us, set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth. Work through your Spirit here today as only you can. We pray this in Christ's name.